Que cherche-t-elle Le reflet de ses yeux De son visage podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Bonjour and welcome to another episode of The Fear of God, your favorite podcast, my favorite podcast. We're going to have a grand old time today. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Now, typically with me is co-host Reed Lackey. And and quite routinely, we will sort of video feed while we do these recordings uh, for you guys. But he, he just came on on audio. He sounded pretty despondent, if I'm being perfectly honest. I hope everything is all right. But he, he did not sound happy. He, he, he sounded a little uh, uh, despairing. He insisted that we not do the video feed. You know, I, I don't know. So it, so it really is just audio for us. I don't really know what, what happened or what he doesn't want me to see, but you know, presumably I, I can't see him right now. So I, I don't think he's present, but hopefully he will return momentarily, hopefully not too long. Um, in the meantime, we're going to hit a few bullet points here real quick. One, fantastic bullet point I'd like to talk about here while Reed is absent because I I don't like just talking to the air, although occasionally it may seem that way. In the middle of this speaking in tongue series that we began last week in which we are highlighting foreign language films, I thought, well, I say I, we thought, who better to feature as a guest during this series than foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy. Vera, welcome back to the fear of God. Oh, bonjour. Comment t'appelles-tu? No. Yes, we oui, oui. <laughs> Yes, this is, let, yes, anticipate much of that. So uh, welcome back, Vera. We're going to hit a few highlights here real quick while I read uh, in absentia. Uh, here at the fear of God, if you've never joined us before, one, welcome. Uh, two, we explore the holy and the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. And we have a lot going on this season. We are in the middle of a first phase of a a series called Speaking in Tongues, like I said, highlighting foreign language films. We would love it if during this series, you decided to buy some merchandise. We do have a couple of uh, fun new designs in the Tee Public shop. A portion of the proceeds from those purchases, it's a lot of P words, goes to support 
the Florence project, we're very excited to be able to contribute in even one little small way and be able to put some funds towards the good work they are doing at the U.S.-Mexico border. Regardless, I'm chatting a lot. Vera, I want to hear from you. But in the meantime, oh, Reed. Hey, buddy. Reed, you... Yeah? You, we, we, you we. Kinda, you look... <laughs> oh, my God. This is called... Parlez-vous français? Mi- <laughs> Comment allez-vous? Yeah, apparently not. <laughs> wow. This is called not taking the bait. This is called... Merci you know, beaucoup. The... the <laughs> Merci beaucoup, Pee-wee. Merci, blah, blah. <laughs> my, my inability to speak French is only rivaled by my vapid unattractiveness. So there it is. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm terrible at all of it. But hey, it's. But it's, you're great at being you, and that's why <laughs> yes. we're glad you're here. Thank God so. there's only one of that. <laughs> yeah, that's Reed, you're, you're here. Sure. I appreciate it. You were sounding pretty rough there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't. Uh, look as rough as you were worried you might. Well, that's the mask. Um, so I guess I got that's this, a concept. Uh, oh, yes, um, I got this fancy yes. new face. And, and when you say uh, mask, what you mean is M-A-S-Q-U-E, right? Uh, yes, indeed. Because this is our our French episode. Masque, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's oh, no. Mas- mascara. Wow. Wow. Oh, boy. Um, wow. So, so I'm just going to apologize right out the gate. We were so sensitive to Korean culture last week, and then, you know, we come on here. Here we are with the, the French, window. and we're like, wah, ha, ha. You know, like, I mean, it's just. Le <laughs> 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 Oh, man. Oh, we man. read, read. It's a good thing we have Vera here because you and I are what the French call les incompetents. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I wasn't going to say it, but. <laughs> I just, I'm just here to affirm. I'm just here to affirm. Yes. Oh uh, boy. Vera, Vera didn't know she was just here to vet our really poor. <laughs> That's all it is. Um. So we're all oh. here, Reed. I don't know if you knew Vera was showing up, but our foreign I did. I was, is joining I was very us for this excited. conversation. Yes, yes. Yes. Very excited to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us on this. Uh, this our French edition of this foreign language series that we are doing called Speaking in Tongues. So thank you. Thank you very much for taking some time to be with us. So happy to be here. Great, great. So happy. So, so we happy. have so we have a lot of things that we need to get to. Um, so uh, I think first off the bat, I want to make a, a little announcement. Uh, we had mentioned this briefly in passing last week about how we have October coming up. October and our newest tradition for the past couple of years is a time for us to highlight favorite films from a particular decade. We started with the 90s. We did the 80s last year. This year, we are doing the 70s. Hashtag I love the 70s is coming arguably the greatest decade for iconic horror films. So um, that is coming your way. If you will look on the feed, should be as of the release of this episode, um, you should see on Twitter, on Instagram, on uh, Facebook, there will be the links to that survey where you can go and you can vote on your favorite horror films from the 1970s. Uh, We've already, uh, just kind of by de facto, because they're great films, we've covered quite a few of what will probably be in the list, but we will be spending some time in October covering some entries from your voted on top 10. So please participate, go to the social media feeds, uh, fill out your survey, and uh, yeah, we're very, very excited, as always, to see how your top top list is going to come up. Reed, do as as the only seventies baby amidst the three of us. Do my votes count for like a point and a half type of thing? Like, 
I, I can't do that level. If you were of math. actually born in the seventies, no, I can't what do that you? level of math. We we discarded David Pumpkins because it was too weird to have like you know all these votes one through five and then something out of ten and everything. I can't do these point and a half things anymore. Okay, just well, give, you know, give me heart palpitations just, just, left and right with doing all this math. I majored in theater arts, Nathan Rouse. I'm not a mathematician. I I do know that much. Damn it, Nathan! I'm um, a podcaster, not a mathematician. Oh my gosh! That's. <laughs> Hi, hi, everybody. Evidently, I well, I, I do in in this odd, awkward lull that you just created. I will um, bring up because <laughs> not my, because it's not only my you, fault. You you did reference October, and in addition to being this year uh, the month of my fortieth birthday, which is exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. It's Halloween's coming. <gasps> Halloween's coming, Vera. Oh, I, I know y'all I know, get excited. in the Halloween spirit. It's exciting. You know, I, I wanted to, and I will um, alert you guys first, uh, you, Reed and Vera, and then those listening when this airs can join in the fun. So I posted on the Instagram the other day, uh, you know, how early is too early to decorate for Halloween? And and honestly, while I meant it as a slightly rhetorical social media post, like a fun little thing, I was also kind of serious because I was like, huh, right now we're recording on September 5th, and I have definitely had the itch to get the decorations out. So it was, mm-hmm. a li- nobody, nobody actually said like, Oh, we do it here. So, you know, it, it, my attempt at clarity didn't actually work, but, <laughs> um, are either of y'all have, has, have any decorations gone up yet? So we, our Thanksgiving is in October is in the beginning of October. What? So, oh, wow. Yeah. Canadians what? have a different Can- Thanksgiving. Is that, <laughs> that's not even, that's not Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's a thing. It makes sense. It's when our harvest That's so ends because it's so cold up here. <laughs> wow. You d- she's our foreign correspondent, <laughs> Nathan. Like, what do you think? Like, what? You guys don't celebrate 4th of July? Oh, What's going on? I was kidding. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I want to go to the Great White North sometimes. But regardless. Okay. <laughs> so Thanksgiving for you happens when? It's. I think it's the weekend of uh, like October 11th, 12th this year. So okay. um, our decorations go up right after, like literally wow. next day. You wait that long, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Got to get rid of the turkey stuff, and then the Halloween stuff comes out. I can appreciate that. So Interesting. I, so I was terribly delighted uh, this past weekend, as of this recording, um, this past weekend, uh, my wife told me what she wanted to do for Labor Day uh, as one of the things that we just sort of get out and about. Uh, it's just an opportunity for us to just kind of bum around town and, and just hang out together. And she wanted to go shopping for Halloween decorations. I was I was delighted. This was my wife who, like normally I'm the one leading the charge for the Halloween stuff. But she was like, no, let's let's go around, look at some different shops. And this woman, whom I love so much, found me i couldn't even believe this it's a it uh it's on my facebook feed i might post it to the fear of god page as well but it was a placard and the the placard which it was it was really cheap it was like only five dollars but this wooden placard that had on it the headless horseman and then uh, and a pretty a pretty nice picture of the headless horseman and then the phrase something wicked this way comes and the reason that that is so interesting to me is because my favorite ray bradbury book is something wicked this way comes. My favorite Halloween ghost, Halloween spirit, is the Headless Horseman. But those two typically do not have anything to do with one another. So the fact that I found them both on this, you know, low price placard for Halloween, I was like, this, this, this is just my year. Like, there's all the amazing things are going to happen this Halloween. I'm so excited, dude. That's very cool. So yes, uh, so but well, in the spirit of that, though, Reed, 
have you did you hang that placard up have you have you started to put out any de- decor yet no because we want to get a few more items together right now it would pretty much be the only thing that we have up but yeah probably in the next week or two we're gonna we're gonna okay. go a little early and start going ahead and hanging we usually in our little apartment we usually hang out like uh one of my favorite elements of our halloween decorations is a stream of orange lights that go over our um like our patio door and it gives the room this wonderful orange glow whenever you turn out all the rest of the lights, and it is so ideal for scary movie watching. I love it so much. So, yes, well, yes, it's wonderful. And I, that this this conversation makes me very happy. Um, <laughs> and and I I want to introduce an idea for this Halloween for the fear of God. If if we all like this idea, okay. Um, so I was in. What store was I in the other day? I was in some random store and they had all their Halloween, you know, kind of tchotchkes out to decorate. Ah. You can buy and all that stuff. And just the, and I, and this isn't related to the post I made about a month ago at the Cracker Barrel. Well, um, (laughs) just that image conjured a lot of warmth and happiness for me of like, oh, look, the Halloween, Halloween is upon us. Yeah. And unrelated to Halloween of the podcast, there's a few heavy, sad things that have happened in our, in and around our home lately and so just this image was very exciting to me and made me feel nice and cozy and and i i then pondered the notion of how curious it is in a positive way in a good way this is me being serious not jokey how things that people who aren't like fear of god type folk think this is all weird and creepy you know mm. like oh like yeah yeah the, the macabre imagery and yeah. you know just halloween maybe halloween in general and how like you know what? It's it, to the, to be able to own this notion, and yes, I am coining this phrase here: com- taking comfort in the creepy. Um, ah. And so, I just thought it'd be really fun this year. There's no contest attached to this. It's not about you know, kind of earning a thing. It's about kind of mutually fear of God family celebrating this thing together. What I want to encourage listeners to do, and we'll be watching the calendar come uh, October 12th or 13th for the Gaudi family um, to start posting. <laughs> photos of people's home Halloween decorations mm. and to to tag it comfort in the creepy hashtag comfort in the creepy uh, post those tag fear of God we'll repost them and just kind of all have some fun together one extra layer of being able to enjoy this thing that we all enjoy so much that a lot of people don't really get but that's okay because you know they're not us and that's whatever that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's they that's they ignorance so you know I love that um, idea that's that's nice. <laughs> well, good, good. I'm glad. Yes, yes. I like that idea too. And just the notion of, you know, kind of all, because what happened, I think we referenced this um, one or two episodes ago. A, it is our third anniversary. So that's really exciting. But part of that is just this really fun and thoughtful community that's developed around the fear of God. So if you're hearing this right now and you're like, hey, I, I, I just put up my decorations or hey, I'm about to do that. Take some pictures, post them to Instagram, tag the fear of God. Uh, put a hashtag of comfort in the creepy. We'll repost those and just kind of share the love this Halloween season. That's awesome. Yes. Happy, happy anniversary, guys. Thank you. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate <laughs> that. Welcome to the party once more, Vera. Yeah, we're we're really, really happy to have you. And in fact, we didn't get to do this last time when you were here because we wanted all of our listeners to get to meet you. But, uh, but Vera, I very, very specifically have a question for you, and that is, what's a watching? <laughs> what you reading? Ooh. What you listening to? Ooh la la! Ooh. 
And my voice is shot for the rest of the episode, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, sincerely, what you been watching, reading, listening to, all of that fun yeah. good stuff? <laughs> um, I struggled with this a little bit because I just spent the last week um, up north at a cottage and uh, literally only access to like Disney VHS tapes. <laughs> 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 so it's like The Lion King 2 on repeat because that's what my Goodness. kids used to watch. Oh, boy. Um, but I actually this week started playing a game again. So it's, I guess, I don't know, watching my character hey, on the screen. That's, I like it. <laughs> watching, watching, reading, listening, playing. Yeah. You know. Sure. Um, anyway, it's called uh, Stardew Valley. Anyone ever heard of that? Ooh, no. 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 It's, it's very similar to Animal Crossing. Um, have you played that? Hmm. I'm aware of it, but I've not played it. Yeah. I've, heard, I've at least heard of Animal Crossing. It's really hard to describe it in a fun way because it sounds really dumb, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I played it last year and I haven't touched it, you know, in months and I got back to it this week and now I'm addicted all over again. But um, basically you uh, own a farm and you plant crops and you harvest them and you have animals oh. and you you collect your animal stuff every day eggs and and wool and all that and you go around town you fish you go to a mine and you mine things um and there's a community center That's you have to lot. rebuild that sounds like a lot of work finished it today <laughs> yeah it is a lot of work and then you like it goes through days and seasons and cycles um and it sounds really dumb but it's actually a lot of fun <laughs> No, it doesn't sound dumb. It sounds like a tactile Farmville. Like that's what that sounds like. Yeah. It's like you know the, the it's like now, an actual yeah. But the guy who created the game, it's one guy who made this game, and it's pretty impressive considering one person did it all. Wow. Now what is this? What is this on? Is it a computer game? Uh, is it like a platform? It's on Nintendo Switch. Oh. Stardew Valley, like D E W. Yes. Is it like fantasy themed? Because that name has like this. Okay, so there's know. fantasy elements. Like just before. Ah, I knew it. Not like <laughs> kind of like just before I uh, came on to do the podcast today, I was playing and I went to sleep and a witch came and I think she cursed my animals. <laughs> oh, I just, no. I don't know what happened because I didn't play the next day because I had to turn it off. So I <laughs> well, no, what would be really funny <laughs> is if you look up like. I how don't do you even defeat know what the... to make of that. No, no, no. What would be great is if you look up online, like online community, you're like, yeah, how do you defeat that witch? And everybody's like, yeah, that's not part of the game. That's yeah, what witch? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Witch. I'm, and it'd be like, I'm, uh. <laughs> I'm trying to get to year three. So I'm in year two in the wintertime. I'm trying to get to year three because at some point the ghost of my grandfather is, gonna, is supposed to come back. Oh, my back. goodness. That's what This happened. is intense. <laughs> Sounding much darker than Farmville. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. This... <sighs> anyway, well, all right. Well, hey, we're, we're, we're all about the multimedia what you doings so mm -hmm. stardew valley i do have a switch so does reed but i'll have to i'll have to vet this a little bit and see see what's up you although i don't should. i don't want a witch to curse me my animals while i'm napping so i don't know, I know. Uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's the worst when that's that a little happens. that's a little intimidating actually <laughs> um i'll go next so you you are playing stardew valley well i had the actually ended up i suspected this might be the case but I had the surprisingly fun time taking my kids to see the Dora the Explorer and the Lost City of Gold movie. I heard that was really good. I'm Reed. not being facetious. I heard it, I heard I know it was you're fun. Not, well, I've seen it. It yeah. is really good That's and really cool. fun. And I love Michael Pena. He's in it. He's hysterical. Nice. Oh. Um, and 
they have a great like i tried to find the soundtrack because she sings a, a song called the poo song which is really great <laughs> and in in the context of the moment she it's like she initiated poop club in in dora land <laughs> um but it was a lot of fun it was a whole lot of fun like don't get me wrong i don't know that i would have ventured out without my kids but if i had seen that without kids i still would have had a really good time does she I know talk that's a weird to, distinction to make does she talk to the the audience in the movie like she does in the show you know it's funny you ask that because part of there's it's it gets kind of meta in places. Uh, early on, she is and she does the delicioso to the camera. Um, <laughs> see, this is all about speaking in tongues, right? See, it all works. Um, <laughs> wow. And her, she's sitting with the parents, which is Michael Pena and oh my gosh, I didn't look up the actress's name. Longoria is it? Eva, Eva Longoria? Longoria. Yeah, yeah, I think that's who it is. Um, so she's looking at the camera. And they're sitting across the table from her. And then they look at each other and say, who is she talking to? It was a really great <laughs> meta moment. And just stuff like that. They really they really um, take the conventions of the show that that dr- drove you crazy as a parent. And you've got three little girls. Vera, so do I. Like, our, it's been a long time since Dora's been on in our home. But it. You know, it bores into your skull. Uh, it's so they been take like those. A day since Dora's been on. Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> well, you would probably love the movie. Like, it's a lot of fun. It's very funny in places. Like, actively very funny. Um, yeah. So nice. Dora and the Lost City of Gold, and I do, I do recommend it. How that's awesome. That? Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what about you, Riri? It reminds me of. So this is not my watch of watching, but it reminds okay. me of because I also just recently saw um, uh, the Detective Pikachu, the Pokemon Detective Pikachu, and I mm-hmm. could not have been previous to that. Could not have really been less interested in Pokemon stuff. Now my right. son kind of gets into it. He knows all the characters, collects the cards, got to catch them all, all that stuff. And um, he, so I basically got it from Redbox as something we could watch together. But I was, I was really taken with it. I think it's a really great story um it's got some surprising twists to it a a really nice underlying theme very funny uh, a lot of fun so yeah it it reminded me of the way you're describing dora reminded me of my recent experience with pikachu because i was like yeah i wouldn't have been interested in this otherwise and probably wouldn't have sought it out if not for my son but then you know here we are so yeah so my very cool yeah so mine is something that i am going to try not to make the entire rest of the episode Uh about um (laughs) Because, and I knew it was coming, um, but it was a little bit of a surprise. You know, I had forgotten that it was dropping this past weekend, um, but Netflix uh, dropped, they've been talking about it for over a year, like it was announced, I think, about a year ago, um, dropped the Dark Crystal series. Uh, It's called The Age of Resistance. Um, It is based upon the property, the 1982 film uh, by Jim Henson and uh, crafted by his puppeteers, um, The Dark Crystal. And I was so eager to see what they were going to do with this show and is it going to hold up? Is it going to feel like the original film? Are they going to try to fancify it up with a bunch of CG creations and what like what are they going to do what what can they even say with this particularly it's a prequel so you know what have we got well first first thing that surprised me and delighted me is when i saw the series because that's one frustration about netflix is they'll say like hey a series is coming but you have no context for how many episodes how long they're going to be whatever um so the first thing i see when i pull it up is that it is 10 episodes and they are an hour each and i was like oh my gosh this is sprawling and epic and i hope it's amazing and so i dove into this thing 
And here's my first big, huge championing of this show. It is, if you are a fan of imaginative world building that is in the real, they have crafted these puppets. They have crafted this universe. There is some computer-generated enhancement, usually uh, to assist with things that you know wouldn't be physical, physically possible in the real, like a large, you know, flying stingray-looking thing. Like, you know, of course, that's a computer-generated image. But most of the characters are actual puppets um, manned by actual puppeteers, and it is breathtaking. It is really, really strong. Um, the production values are through the roof. The world is so fully realized. It is massive, expansive. The story itself is sprawling. I had read one comparison because I looked up a bunch of stuff after I finished it. I had read one comparison where, and that I thought was really right where it was like basically like uh, this is uh, basically a PG version of Game of Thrones. Like that's the kind of epic fantasy that you're dealing with here. The characters are so profound. They're they're really wonderfully realized. Uh, there are some heavy stakes. Like if you're wondering whether or not to watch it with your kids, like it. it, it the, I heard a joke where it said like, well, it's not called the the hope crystal. Like it's <laughs> it's called the dark crystal. Um, but that having been said, I was delighted and surprised and invigorated by how much hope is in the story. Like it is one of those where it puts its characters uh, to the limit and then forces them to try to find unity and strength and courage and hope in the midst of what they're up against, and it is really, really special, and I want them to do a season two so badly. Even, you know, like season one, it has its own measure of completeness, thankfully, but um, I want them so badly to do a season two and revisit this world. It is, I've been thinking in so much about it and talking so much about it, so uh, please, if you have any remote interest or nostalgia for the 1982 film The Dark Crystal, seek out and devote the time to Netflix's The Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance. It is so well worth it. Receives my highest recommendation. I love, love, love it. I would just like to applaud us for the fact that our primary talking point today is a, you know, 60-year-old black and white French Criterion Collection film. (laughs) And also what we consume as well is... You know, uh, uh, world building, witch cursing video games <laughs> and children's TV show adaptation films and fantasy based puppet action series. We yeah. are well rounded individuals, and I'm proud of us. Covering we all really the bases are. today. Yep. That's true. So uh, I think that uh, that puts another button on another installment of what you watching, what you reading, what. Are you listening to? You know what? It just occurred to me in the moment. It would have been fun to be like, what, 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 uh, Vera, last time you were here, we were in the middle of another TV series, Ash vs. Evil Dead. Right now we are um, venturing into something very different, so I hope that's okay. It's very tonally different than Ash vs. Evil yeah, Dead. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, 
not quite as bonkers. <laughs> um, you know, not quite as many colon monsters in this series. I must apologize, I suppose. Um, Reed, you want to kind of tee us up for yeah, what we're sure, doing today? Yeah, sure. Uh, all right. <clears throat> Mesdames et messieurs, bienvenue à autre épisode de hashtag TV Guide Post. Cette semaine, Reed, Nathan et notre invité Vera vont parler de trois semaines et quatre semaines, episode de Dark, la série originale de Netflix. Oh, oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing! That was so amazing! <laughs> just, I just doubled down. I thought she was just going to do the... I thought she was just going to do like, and hey, here we go, everybody. And then she just bust out with all this culture. That's so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true boy from Cherville. Right, I want to apologize Whoa. to anybody that actually speaks fluent French that uh, for my <laughs> accent and my butchering of the number four. But <laughs> oh, that is so awesome and amazing! Thank you for that, Vera. That was delightful. That was one of my favorite surprises. That's, <laughs> <everything>. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so, yes. So I yes, have a please, so I have Reed, some, some stage setting to do. So um, okay. I have Vera. I don't know if you caught this in last week's The Wailing. So this is a rarity for the fear of God in that I am not familiar with this show before. Like I had heard of it before, but I've not seen it, and I am only watching it as uh, we cover it. So I'm so I'm not familiar. I have uh, gone a little bit ahead just because of you know recording magic. But um, so I'm only up through episode six of this series, and we're talking about three and four today. So my first question to you is. Did you watch? What's your context for the show? Have you watched this before? Um, did, have you only made it up to episode four? Have you seen the whole season? What's your history with it? Um, so s- similar to you, I didn't start watching it until you guys had announced um, that you were doing the series Dark, and then you asked gotcha. me to be on this episode, and I was like, oh, I should probably start watching this. Um, <laughs> so I think we are on episode either five or six. So mm, just okay. past the episodes that we're covering today, but but Rob and gotcha. I are really enjoying the show, so we're going to watch it all the way through. Yeah, it's it's really like uh, Nathan had kind of cued me up for this, and and it's absolutely what I'm experiencing is that the deeper you go into the show, the more riveting, the more captivating, the more fascinating it is as as dots start to be connected. And I'm yeah, I'm I'm really really enjoying it. Sounds like you are too. Yeah, um, it reminds me. Did either of you ever see? Um, it's a British show called Broadchurch. Yes, yes, I watched the first season. I know season the of name, it. but I've never seen it. It reminds me um, a lot of like small town. Um, everybody in the yeah. town is connected in certain ways. Even the music, kind of the way it's mm. used throughout and how it swells and it gets kind of oppressive, like really reminds me of that. Um, yeah, yeah. But this has the sci-fi and and horrific element to it, which I also really enjoy. No, absolutely. Yeah, and it's so funny you mentioned that because that's such an apt comparison. There's so many, and I feel like there are a multitude of them. Broadchurch is, is the most prominent in my mind, um, but it feels like there's a lot of shows that kind of have that conceit. Small town, big mystery at the heart of it. Uh, usually someone in the first episode, like with Dark, says, yeah, this that does that stuff doesn't happen here. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, okay, it's <laughs> it's happening now, so get on board. Um so yeah, uh, I, the the way we do these TV guideposts, just as a refresher to everybody, is is we're not going to cover any big thematic ideas in this little thing. We're just going to go through some of what we liked, some of what scared us, maybe something we didn't like, or just general thoughts and feelings about the episode. Let's dive into uh, episode three called Past and Present. I'm going to start right out the gate. Uh, my notes are basically all blended together. They're not 
separated out as like scares or likes. But that image from above of those 33 dead sheep in that episode is pretty haunting. Yeah. I was I was like, oh, geez, like all of these bodies just laying down there. I was, oh, man, that was crazy. I, you know, it's, I can't tell. It's funny rewatching the series and because I had seen season one for uh, already and, and now rewatching it and see uh, episodes two and three are pretty fresh um, and especially five and six. But I just love the kind of general tone of the series, this, you know, this kind of sprawling narrative, you know, uh, that touches all these different characters and all these different generations there are some specifics. I did. I do want to highlight, and doggone it, I didn't even look up the dude's name, and I feel terrible because I was about to pat him on the back. But I, the actor who plays Ulrich, yeah, like, mm. yeah, he's so. I don't. It it feels like, and so this this is going to sound initially like a slight, but then I'm going to pivot it into a positive. It feels like they wanted like a German Liam Neeson. You know, it's this very oh, kind okay. of hard kind of grizzled kind of uh, sad but kind of has this undercurrent boiling beneath him that might have some violent tendencies to it if pushed the wrong direction um but and and I just love he he's got such a great look and mm-hmm. um you know he's he's being put through the ringer in these couple of episodes as he's pining for Mikkel and wondering what's happened to him, having no clue where we're at, where these two episodes are of the bigger sort of machinations that are going on. Right. Kind of on, a, right. on an almost cosmic scale, if you will. But I don't know. I just really wanted to highlight him, love him. This episode, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it focuses on the eighties set, right? Yeah. Like correct. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 we, we meet the nurse or at least, at that age, the nurse. Yep, nurse um, interacting with Mikkel, and I'll give this as one last super like, and then you know, Vera, you can throw some uh, pepper in some too. The song "Shout" by Tears for Fears. That, that's a great, <laughs> great mic drop there. Mic drop, great needle drop there uh, for the show. That's a great song. Um, anyway, I'm just really enjoying the show. What are some general uh, takes from you, Vera, having just now gotten into the series? It's also that song is perfectly timed. I think it's when he's walking into the high school, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like side ponytails and scrunchies everywhere. And it's like, it's yeah. so 80s. It's great. Um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the actor who plays Ulrich, whose name I just looked up and then immediately forgot it. Oliver Muscucci? Yeah, yeah, or, or um, Masucci, something like that. Yes, it's like that, yeah. And, uh, yeah, especially at the end of the episode where they do the side-by-side with Mikkel and, That's and Ulrich. That's amazing. Oh, oh I love that. It's so heartbreaking and so beautifully shot. I loved it. Um, yeah. And I also liked the use of the side-by-side when they're showing the teens um, from the 80s and mm-hmm. their adult selves because I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm too oh, dumb yeah. to remember who anybody is. Thank you for doing this, Dark. <laughs> It was so smart coming this early in because they basically, they teased us at the end of episode two that we are going to see younger versions of at least some of these characters. So as we meet so many more of them, I spent most of this episode wondering, like, well, who, who is that? Is, you know, some of them I knew right away and some of them like, I, I, don't, I don't know about that one. So I loved that they did that at the end to fully connect the dots about like, oh, no, this person is this person and this person is this person. Um, 
One thing that I'll mention about the 80s setting, so this is not a ding against Stranger Things, which I love, um, but there's a way in which this 80s nostalgia that's riding through much of culture right now, there's this way that it's almost as if the presentation they're giving us is more the film version of the 80s than what the actual 80s was like. It's very and, sanitized, yeah. Yes, and, and and that's good. It works because it's fun. You recognize these sort of motifs and everything. But what's so great about this is I actively believe that these characters are in the 80s. Like, this, this feels like it. There's these more subtle touches to certain clothing choices or, you know, things like that song busting in. There are, there are different... Uh, it's not like hitting you in the face with like '80s, you know. Like it's, it's just, <laughs> it's just there, and and it's real. And granted, this is supposed to be taking place, um, you know, overseas from America, so maybe that has something to do with it as well. But I just I really appreciated how everything feels much more authentically like the '80s, whereas even in shows that I like, Stranger Things, that I love, it can sometimes more feel like '80s cinema than it does the actual 80s and so i loved that about this are either of you doing any sort of note-taking about relationships like i will keep going back i've got a sort of a master list at the top of my broader dark notes uh of just parents these two people siblings these two people kids because there's so much to keep track of i should have done that because all of like the the blonde german teenage boys i keep mixing them up and rob's like that's sure. not who these people are and, and, like, <laughs> and i'm like oh this person is this person's dad and he's like no learn people's names it'll be easier but i can't i'm really bad at it so i should have kept a list i should be doing that too it has uh it's escaped me a couple of times in fact there's an episode coming up not in not number four but uh there was one episode that i wrote down where i was like wow i yeah i had no idea that those two people were married i, like, I had no idea <laughs> so uh, yeah i should be keeping a master list as it were but i'm not well and kudos to the kind of casting office because you know while yes vera i know what you're saying you have people like young ulrich and maybe someone like magnus who is his son and then um jonas who is Hannah's son. And the kid who starts with a B. Bartosz. Yes. yes, I don't know he's what he Bartosz, thank you. He's he's dark-headed. Yeah. All I was going to say is those other three do kind of have a blondish kind of feel to them. But ignoring that, I feel like the casting, uh, you know, kind of folks did a really good job of more or less, once you kind of acclimate to the world, have most folks have a pretty distinct you know, kind of look to them and, and which is important when you have this many characters. Agreed. Um, yeah. Um, is there anything else on past and present or should we move on into double lives? I do want to just celebrate. I'm sorry, Vera. I yeah. do want to celebrate exactly what you said, Vera. Like I love that final kind of minute of past and present, you know, that, mm-hmm. and, and for for someone like me, and I, I think it's possible I speak for you here to read, Vera, I don't know your familiarity with the show, but there's so many echoes of like the TV show Lost, which I adore in this series, which is just kind of sprawling, lots of characters, you know, sci-fi based, but much more truncated, much more deliberate and intentional um, conventions, you know, it's kind of sci-fi conventions. But what I find so pleasant about Dark um, is it's clear... <laughs> It's clear that this is intended from go. And and by this, I just mean 
the production design married to the narrative, the bigger narrative, exemplified in scenes like the split screen of Mikkel in the 80s opening of the cave and Ulrich in the 2019 opening of the cave. Like, that's just a magical shot mm-hmm. that yeah. I just love so much. Um, what were you going to say, Vera? Uh, yeah, nothing as, uh, as I like praise to that the that scene because it's so well shot and also the casting of the young and old because i think that they did a really great job of sometimes you have a movie or a show where they have the the young and the old who are the same person right the young self the old self and you're just like okay whatever you have to buy into it but like these people actually in terms of bone structure and stuff look very similar to their Mm -hmm. their older counterparts and so i really appreciate that but um i just had a, a couple of not silly notes but kind of like why is everybody touching dead birds all the time so many people picking up dead birds and i'm like that's (laughs) disgusting this is how you get avian flu (laughs) so many germs so many germs oh that scene where they all fell out of the sky is oh creepy yeah it is super creepy birds are creepy and uh And uh, the guy who's performing the necropsy on the sheep, and he's not wearing a mask, and he's uh, he's got the yeah. bone saw, and he's cutting the skull open. I was like, oh, my oh. gosh, that's disgusting. It actually made me oh. gag while I was watching it. Yeah, because they cut back to it like four times. Yeah. Like, yeah, we get it. He's cutting into the crane. We get it. Like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty unsettling. And my last note is just that, um, you know, Mikkel's skull sweater that he's wearing? Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. I have the same. I had the same sweater in my youth. What? <laughs> Whoa! What? Maybe oh, I'll rent it. Good thing you didn't other. go. In, yeah, good thing you didn't go in any caves or anything. Like, who well, knows we, what would have happened? We actually live very close to a nuclear plant. Oh my gosh! So. Oh, what? No. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, no. oh my gosh! <laughs> Suddenly the whole show goes yeah. next level. Like, wait a second. Right, right. No wonder you hate birds so much. They're always <laughs> They're falling out falling dead in your sky. sidewalk. Yeah. Right. No, like, like uh, within within the the kilometer radius that they give us, um, the town council mails us like special pills in case there's a a reactor meltdown. Oh, and you're supposed to oh take them my gosh! Wow. What? That's a bad <laughs> well, news day, right there. Yes, as uh, kind of tagging onto that, and my final little note here. I know we're not going theme yet, but a quote I love from this episode is when the retiring nuclear plant facilitator is handing the reins to Claudia, who, by the way, Claudia is a Tiedemann. Her father is the constable, the policeman. She's yes. having an affair with Tronta, who is Ulrich's father. So just mm-hmm. as you're keeping score at home. But uh, <laughs> when he's when he's handing the reins off to Claudia, he says, what we know is a drop and what we don't know is an ocean. I just mm, love yes, that that's line. a great line. Yeah. I love that line. Uh, that's a wonderful so line. pivoting into episode four, which is called Double Lives, um, this one kind of as an A story, focuses on Charlotte uh, and Peter Doppler. Charlotte is the police, maybe the police chief, uh, but definitely high-ranking police officer. Ulrich's boss and her husband, Peter, um, they are estranged from each other. It's insinuated he had had some uh, sort of sexual dalliances on the side. And Mm -hmm. uh, focusing on their relationship to their two daughters, only one of whom's name... I got, but Francisca is the older redhead. And then the absent, the missing, potential missing uh, disappearance of their younger deaf daughter. This whole episode, like that story. Elizabeth, Elizabeth excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to add that to my master list. Um, (laughs) That whole 
storyline. Oh my gosh. That yeah, that's pretty rough. harrowing. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of moments in this episode where I was just feeling very anxious for everything, uh, particularly when she's, I mean, the music sets the stage for it, the entire premise of what we've seen in the show thus far, but when she is not picked up, when Elizabeth is not picked up and decides to walk home, I was like, good oh, lord, God. how like many of these are going Yeah, <laughs> right. how many of these are we going to have to endure? And um, so, yeah, the, the so much about this episode was just intensely harrowing um, for a number of reasons. But it's also, yeah, it's, it's pretty, their relationship with the police chief and her uh, psychiatrist, uh, husband um it, it was interesting because like he's Jonas's psychiatrist yes. or therapist yeah and uh it was fascinating to me to learn all of these other elements of like and it isn't it revealed in this episode I hope I'm not giving something away from a future episode that I've seen but uh isn't it in this episode that it's revealed that like okay he was driving around on the night yes. that yes. Mikkel yeah. disappears and uh there was that red dirt in his in the Right. floorboard of his car and so um one of the things well, that she I, dis- she discovers it based on the video camera yes it, yes yeah, yeah, and yeah. she and she prints out that f- photo yes. of him driving by with his license plate and everything one of the things that i love 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 about this show so i've watched a number uh, um i'll be very brief about this in the wake of the tv show lost um <laughs> you saw a ton Lost of... references to this episode. So here, we go. Yes. here we go. Um, Fear of God, you... bingo. That's exactly right. Oh, you beat <laughs> me to it. So, um, but in the wake of the show Lost, uh, I feel like a lot of TV shows and TV show producers um, sort of didn't quite get what was so captivating about Lost. So you saw some copycat shows where it's like, here's the incredible mystery. Where is everybody? What happened? And and all of this back and forth thing in time and all of these different things, which Dark has many of those same similar elements. But what I got frustrated about in those other shows that Dark does impeccably well is those other shows from episode to episode would lead you from conclusion to conclusion what i mean by that is that at the end of the episode there would be some stinger saying like "Ooh, this person's really behind the big mystery or this person was the one that did it all or you know and it would lead you from conclusion to conclusion what i love about dark is that it without much commentary simply guides you from clue to clue so Mm -hmm. it's not telling you how people feel or what people think about the dots that they're connecting. You just see it. You just see them pull at the thread. And I love that because then you feel, I do, maybe the rest of the audience feels this way, is that you you feel as engaged or connected to their unraveling of the mystery as anybody else does. And obviously the show gives us more pieces of information than it gives any other singular character in the show. But uh, it was, it's just, I love that tone and that approach where it's like, no, we're not going to end every episode with some big dramatic bum, bum, reveal. Bum, yeah. Right. Of like, Oh, it's really this person this whole time or whatever. Instead, they just lead you to the puzzle pieces and let you kind of put it together as you're going. And I just love that about the way this story plays out. Couldn't, couldn't love it more. I had two more little uh, notes that these are more just things that um, pinged me uh, as something I should probably pay attention to or think about uh first thing was the uh, i believe it's the first scene of this episode the teacher talks about symmetry specifically yes. and, and repetition uh, yeah. yeah symmetry and repetition and of course the opening title sequence which i don't know if we've referenced uh, we, we referenced it last week briefly but this op- opening right. title sequence is amazing it's great. 
And it's I, inten- I intentionally didn't bring it up just now because I'm like, man, I'm going to sound like this, you know, uh, be- beating a dead horse here. Oh, um, no, it's no, it's wonderful. It up, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And it's all these split shots of like exactly what the teacher describes in the classroom of like a central point and everything's bleeding out from that central point. Um, and uh, it is just yeah, it was, it was really, really wonderful. Um, it felt a bit on the nose, uh, but I appreciated it. And of course it's got my interest peaked. The old man muttering over and over again, the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end. Uh, the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end. So of course that's got, I don't know exactly where the show is going. Please no spoilers, Mr. Rouse, but that's got my interest <laughs> peaked in terms of like, okay, that was a very deliberate, repetitive phrase. And what's funny, this is actually my final note on the episode. What's funny is I wrote down during this episode, um, but it was answered for me in the very next episode. Um, I said, so who is this Noah? Because I thought that was the trench coat man until I saw a trench coat man telling little Yasin about, you know, that Noah sent him. And I was like, oh, great. Well, trench, trench coat man's not Noah. And so I wrote down who is Noah. And, uh, you know, for that's right. So people (laughs) following along at home and have not progressed on, uh, they tell you pretty explicitly who Noah is in episode five. So uh, actually I should have, what I should have said there was, "Mm, who is trench coat man? Ah, (laughs) I have a theory. I have a theory uh, on who. Yes, I will. Because, uh, I do, uh, based on some material that we see in five and six, I've got a theory of who trench coat man is. So anyway, uh, yeah, those, that's all I had. You know the guy who works in the police station with the eye patch? <laughs> I was about yeah, to talk yeah. about him. <laughs> yeah, Do we yeah. know why he has an eye patch? Nope. Okay. Nope. Every time he comes on screen, I'm like, why? <laughs> what my actual note on him is I love the random eye patch guy. It's like for a show about mystery and time folding, that one is just screaming, look at me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and honestly, I say this sincerely, though I have seen the full first season. And it would make sense that something that deliberate in production design would come back into play. I can't remember that. I don't think it does in season one. So if if it oh, if he has some weird role beyond that, that you know, I don't know. But yes, well, I kept, yeah, I I kept expecting him when the police chief or whoever you know whatever her role is. When she kept saying like, "How's that database coming?" I kept expecting him to go, "I got one eye. It's gonna <laughs> take me a while to get through this thing." So anyway, yes, those those are pretty random. It's very funny. <laughs> go Vera, go Vera. What else you got? Um, I I have one. Well, I keep thinking as I'm watching it that 1986 wasn't can't possibly be 33 years ago, and then oh, I remember gosh. that I am 33. <laughs> so wow, <duh>. wow, <laughs> wow, indeed. Yeah, indeed. throws me off every time. But um, my last note is uh, Elizabeth, the deaf daughter, signs German sign language, which is different than American. Interesting. Sign um, Did not even think about that. Wow. But it appears that they use the same alphabet that we do, um, mm-hmm. and. This is so um, I've mentioned before I work as a sign language interpreter, but my primary contract that is working with newcomers to Canada that are deaf. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm their interpreter for a program that they're in and I go with them to whatever appointments they they book me for job interviews, doctor's appointment, whatever. Um, So they either sign nothing because having a disability in their country is considered um, uh, shameful. And so they're not sent to school. Or they sign their country's signed language, right? And so it's not universal. It's very different. Wow. Um, However, it appears the German alphabet is the same as our alphabet. 
um, even though most of what they're signing is different. At the end of the episode, when she says to her mom, and if you don't know sign language, you wouldn't have caught this, but Rob and I both caught this, is she says to her mom um, that she was with Noah, but she doesn't spell his name. She, she does the letter N and she shakes her hand like a sign name. So a sign name is how you refer right. to somebody um, instead of spelling everybody's name all the time. So I would sign mm. my name like the letters V-E-R-A and then I would tell somebody what my sign name is. And from then on in conversation, that's how I would be referred to. Oh, wow. But she she doesn't mouth Noah and she doesn't spell it out. She just does a Noah sign name and her mom's like, who's Noah? And I'm like, there's no way you would have gotten that Noah is what she <laughs> Interesting. said. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> and that's We're on to you, Dark. That's right. <laughs> so you would only catch that if you know sign language and nobody does. And so it's not a big wow, deal. That's but I caught it and I was annoyed. Unless <laughs> Charlotte subconsciously knows who Noah is. Oh, maybe I'm just, I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff out there. It's something Elizabeth <laughs> does earlier in the episode. Like she refers to Mikkel as M, right. like the letter M and shaking her hand, which is, mm. which makes sense because it's somebody in her life that she would it's be familiar. talking about. Right. She's right. familiar right. with, right? Um, well, that's, uh, we, that's, look at you. You're just a, a guest of many insights. Um, <laughs> let me. I'm skin, Vera. Do you have any other notes specifically you want? Nope, that's it. Okay. Um, I, I yes, I agree. I love the random eye patch guy. The the plot starts to thicken here. Now I have watched five and six in prep for next week's episode, next week's Fear of God, but I've not watched beyond that since my initial run. But is there any indication? I can't remember in this episode. Is there any indication of the shed that Charlotte finds? its ownership mm, not to me i don't think so okay that must be in a subsequent episode um hmm hmm who is, who is that trench coat man um <laughs> one last note and then one last quote a note and a quote i love see this is why i would probably be at home in your home country, Vera, because I love that on this show, everyone wears coats all the time. Like, <laughs> I want to live in a place where I can wear outerwear most of the time. I am a fan of outerwear. We've commented love... on that, too. They're like, wear sweater what? upon sweater really? upon yes, coat. Like, they do. <laughs> they layer it up. I love it. It's it's stylish and it's cozy. And I like stylish <laughs> and cozy. That... <laughs> if, I, if I could choose how someone might describe... Uh, uh, my how I present myself, stylish and cozy, might be how I would choose uh, to be <laughs> described. Um, as a final quote here, Reed, you alluded to this a minute ago. I don't think this is the old man wandering. I do think this is a voiceover. Yes, the final part of the final voiceover, a quote that I wrote that I like is that there is but one path through all times, predetermined by the beginning and by the end, which is yeah. also the beginning. Yep. Um, yep. That was really awesome. So that is dark. Season one, episodes three and four. Thank you guys for going on this little journey to the wooded uh, town of Winden. Vera, would you do you, do you want to take us out? Oh, I'll take us out. I'll do it like um like a flight attendant. I'll do the French and then Ooh. the English. <laughs> Ooh, nice. <laughs> that's that's how our flights work. We have it in both official languages. C'était une autre episode de hashtag TV Guide posts. Rejoignez-nous la semaine prochaine pour épisode 5 et 6 de Dark, malheureusement sans Vera. À la prochaine! This has been another episode of Hashtag TV Guideposts. 
Tune in next week for episodes five and six of Dark, sadly, without Vera. Goodbye. That's awesome. Oh, my gosh. Um, heads up, I am honestly thinking about just, uh, having you just record all of our TV guide posts from now on. <laughs> That's gonna, hilarious. Gonna just, uh, so just, uh, you know, we'll talk about it after the show. We'll, we'll, we'll see, uh, we'll see about that. Um, so, uh, it, thank you very, very much for that, Vera. That was delightful. In the sort of spirit of this, uh, before we get into our film proper for this particular episode, I am going to make an intentional attempt to also recommend in this series, hashtag speaking in tongues, at least two other films from the same region, either from either in the same language or made in the same region. And so uh, this time around, we are covering a film from 1960 called Eyes Without a Face. Um, but I would also like to recommend a film from 1955 called Diabolique. Um, it is also, it, it, similarly to some of what we're going to be getting into in Eyes Without a Face, it's, it's a thriller. It is uh, alarmingly unsettling in a number of ways, uh, particularly for a film from the late, the, you know, the mid-50s. But it is a film I highly, highly recommend. So uh, seek it out, Diabolique. Uh, the other one is much more recent. I actually did not write the year down, so I apologize for that. But there's a film coming out of France called, uh, the French title is Ils. Uh, if I'm saying that correctly, Vera, please correct me. It's I-L-S. So is Il. that just Ils? Il. Il. Um, yeah. So Il, uh, the English name is Them. Uh, it is a very brief, it's only 75 minutes long. It's a very brief film. Uh, as much as I should say without spoiling specific beats is, is think of a kind of a home invasion type of film. But for its 75-minute runtime, it is nerve-wracking and nail-biting. And uh, so it is uh, that film uh, is currently available to stream if you have an Amazon Prime account. So I would highly recommend both Diabolique from uh, 1955 and Il, uh, a.k.a. Them, uh, again, I don't remember the year, but if you look up the French title, which again is spelled I-L-S, and thank you, Vera, pronounced Il, uh, you will find it. It will show up as them. So highly recommend both of those films. And skipping a bit to the end, I'm very excited to be talking about Eyes Without a Face. Guys, can I can I share a little bit of the story behind <laughs> what happened? Can I, I'll, I'll, I'll be quick and tasteful. Oh, that so, story. Yes, yes. yes. I'll you be quick and tasteful. So, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's just us. You, can, you don't have to be tasteful. Okay, yeah, nobody, nobody else is listening. So, um, so basically, we had, an ori- we had a different film uh, scheduled to cover for this installment. And that, that different film uh, is uh, Alexan- Alexander Aja's uh, debut film called High Tension. Um, Holt Tension. Holt tension. Thank you, Vera. Like Man, I'm so Same glad thing. you're. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so. I'm just. I'm so relieved. So um, I say that with no facetiousness whatsoever. I really mean that. Um, so, uh, but we had that film uh, scheduled to cover. Um, but I had never seen that film, and neither had Nathan, and neither had Vera, and we were just like, yeah. So this is very popular. It's uh, it's known uh, in a lot of the circles. We did a little bit of research, and it was one of the most uh, uh, notorious uh, films. But Nathan French gets films. No. French, French films, films. yes, yes, yeah. yes, because we wanted to cover a film from the French region, and so when uh, 
we go when we went to watch it. Nathan was the first <laughs> among us to watch it, um, and I started. And, yeah. and so, so he begins it, and the first up, he's like, "This is this is dubbed and dubbed rather badly." And I was like, "Oh, dang it!" Like the whole intention behind the series was foreign language films, and I was like, "Well, maybe we can hang a lantern on it, and 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 that'll be fine." Um, I'm not going to describe the scene, but then about ten minutes in, suddenly I get a phone call from Nathan, and I was like, hey, "Nathan, <laughs> what's going on?" And he describes to me this scene that happens about 10 minutes in and I'm like uh oh okay yeah yeah we got to we got to we got to see if there's something else that we can, <laughs> that we can do here again I'm not going to describe the scene but I was like uh so then we reached out to Vera and we're like hey we know it's a little late in the game cuz this was pretty this was pretty 11th hour switching and we're like okay uh sh- should we do something different here and what's funny about that to me so that whole experience was you know my bad guys but my whole <laughs> but my that whole experience was I was feeling a bit shy because I love this film the eyes without a face is what we're covering and I love this film, but I was feeling just a bit shy about like, well, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in this Criterion Collection film from 1960. And and I mean, I shouldn't have worried about all of that because I don't know. We'll get into it, but um, but I was like, I love this film, and I almost thought about like, oh, we should do Eyes Without a Face. But then I was like, no, we should do something more modern and popular, and blah blah blah. So then I bust out with high tension, and and <laughs> I still have not seen it as of this episode. Uh, well, but, and. Don't don't beat yourself up on this one, buddy. Like okay, okay. You know, I, I mean, this high tension does get a lot of praise. Honestly, if if you hadn't initially said let's just go with it because the dubbing, I I might have pushed a little harder there. It was yes that scene, and then our our dear foreign correspondent Vera was going to be on the episode, and like I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and this is but really uncomfortable. The dubbing is so bad, like. I don't know mm. if either of you attempted to start it whatsoever, but I didn't. I did not. When I started it the night I did, I was like, wait a minute. Because the first kind of couple minutes or maybe 30 seconds, let's say, of of on camera action, some of the characters' mouths were obscured. And so I, it wasn't so much that I was like, this is definitively dubbed as much as I was like, wait a minute. I think I thought this was in French. Mm. And you know the scene keeps going and then finally i was like this is weird so i text yes like you just said Reed. i texted you you did some research Lionsgate did release a dubbed version that's the only one i could find to stream yeah. um and in fact the trailer on itunes is in dubbed english and it sucks uh, and sounds terrible that's a bummer. um yeah it is a bummer because what's hilarious is yes i did get 10 minutes into it and the first 10 minutes primarily are these two kind of, I guess, you know, 20-something gals riding in a car or through the countryside, and they're speaking dubbed English, and then all of a sudden they start cussing at each other in French, and they subtitle the cuss words. I was like, what? Come on. What are we... <laughs> what is happening here? It was so wow. just weird. And then that sure. thing happened, and I was like, yeah, that ain't right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's a, a that ain't right right in the middle of 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, like, wow. yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes. Nip, nip, nip that one in the bud. Exactly. Um, but instead, we get this. Uh, I promise, guys, I won't be shy about this anymore. If I really get passionate about a film, even if it's an older or more obscure one, then I'll I'll, I'll push for it. But so now we get Eyes Without a Face. So um, before I get into some trivial bits and stuff like that, I wanted to know anybody's history. So had first, of, I, I am presuming uh, that nobody had seen this film before except me. Had anybody heard of this film before? Correct me if I'm wrong on either of those fronts. Vera? No, I had not. Had you, And you hadn't even heard of it? No. French title, by the way, Les Yeux Sans Visage. 
Thank you, Leo Son Visage. 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 Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, Nathan, what about you? I, um, I knew it by its French title. And, um, that, you know. Really? <laughs> no, not I'm at sitting, all. I'm sitting there like, what is it? What, when Vera, did you go? Is it? I, like, I only I'm knew a, it under its French I'm title. A, <laughs> That's how cultured I, I was, am. I was so in the dark until finally I saw it pop up on screen. And yeah. I was like, oh, like, this oh, is Lay You on Visage. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. Oh um, Vera, you'll love this little anecdote before Reed does his trivial bits here. Um, uh, or Le Trivial Bits. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so. <laughs> About an hour into the movie, and Reed knew I was watching at a certain point because I started texting him some, <laughs> as as we do. And about an hour in, where this movie, like, if listener, if you watch this movie, there's nothing metaphorical about the title whatsoever. I mean, it's very. <laughs> I would say I would say it's on the nose, but even that's too literal. Um, so about an hour in, I start texting him about the the a grisly scene in the middle, mm-hmm. and and so we're back and forth, and then just feeling the spirit guide which i ab- obliged so often i just text him and i said yeah but i'm still struggling to understand the title <laughs> <laughs> sweet read like 30 seconds pass and i get this like ellipsis and he's like really because <laughs> i was like are you making a joke or are you asking a question i don't know what it is it's like it's literally literally like it's it's the name of the film is eyes without a face and there is a character in this whose face has been horribly disfigured by an accident and all that we have of her are these eyes poking out of this oh, mask. oh that was great oh was man great. I, was, I was like really you struggling with this really <laughs> I got to use your sarcasm font, I guess. (laughs) Right, right, right. Oh no, I intentionally resisted that one. Please read. Tell us. Tell us about the the bits without a face. So, um, okay. So I'll I'll spare one of my favorite uh, points of trivia uh, till towards the end. But um, so at the time this film was made, there were very very few French horror films. I had already mentioned Diabolique, um, which had come out about five years earlier, but. Horror was a genre that was somewhat frowned upon uh, among French filmmakers. Um, And so the original critical reaction to this film was pretty poor. In fact, um, and some of the people that had negative reviews against it were like really adamant and passionate about their negative reviews to the degree that there is one English film critic. I didn't get his name, but he worked for a publication called The Spectator, and he was almost fired for defending it. (laughs) it There was was a lot of vehemence against this film. Um, So then when it was released, in the U.S. and was only for it was it was released and then just sort of discarded. It was released as a heavily edited version, and the title was changed to "The Horror Chamber of Doctor Faustus," which is inexplicable because there is no Doctor Faustus character in the film. Um, and so it was just, but it was released as as the Horror Chamber of Doctor Faustus, um, and it was finally it was not until two thousand three that it was released uncut and with its original title where it enjoyed almost immediate critical resurgence and praise um, and so then becomes like this landmark influential horror film. So the the director said he never himself considered it a horror story, rather a, an, a prolonged tale of anguish, which I, of course, found uh, interesting. Uh, the scene that... Uh, prompted you to start texting me, Nathan, was incredibly controversial it, at the time. And uh, at one screening, it is said that when that scene happened, seven audience members fainted 
while watching that specific scene. It's a surgery scene that we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but what, yeah, when they screened it originally, like seven audience members fainted. But my favorite trivial bit about this, aside from the fact that Billy Idol made that famous song, it's one of his most popular songs, and it was direct homage to this film, is that John Carpenter has stated that when he was seeking out the look of the mask for Michael Myers, he referenced to people, have you seen this old film, Eyes Without a Face? And that it is presumably the uh, inspiration behind Michael Myers. Really? Have you? Yeah. Yes. I, I, I had that as one of my trivial bits, too. Isn't that amazing? I was so excited about that. I and then so you excited. watch it and you're like, of course, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yup. Yup, yup, yup. Um, so is there anything that anybody else had? I just sort of rattled off my highlights. Did anybody else do any uh, digging and find up any other trivial bit of information? The there, Yeah. Uh, Face Off, the movie with... Uh, oh, no. Nick yeah. Oh. John Woo. Yeah, yeah. John Travolta. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the... The, the scene that we're talking about in the middle of the movie was like face off drew from that heavily. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. And there's a, a wow. 2011 film called the skin I live in. Have either of you seen that? Ooh, no, I've but, heard it, of but it, it's, but yes. I've not seen it. Rob, it's on my radar to watch. I haven't seen it yet. Rob made me watch it. Uh, and I didn't get all the way through it. It was a little bit too much for me, but also Ooh. similar similar context to to this film but like taken up a whole other notch um, oh wow but it's diehard fan of evil dead says a little too much for me little, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that is amazing so you watch it and then you'll see um oh boy uh and then i the uh man named borkin that was his Borkon was is his last name but he uh directed the first french horror movie and he cautioned the director of this film um, because it was adapted from a book, oh, okay. not to include too much blood, which would upset the French censors, to refrain from showing animals getting tortured, which, which would upset English censors, and to leave out any mad scientist characters, because that would upset German censors. And all oh three of those things are included in the novel. And so oh, wow. the, the director, Franju, was uh, kind of at a loss as to how to adapt this this book into oh film goodness but i think he did a, a great job um at yeah taming or removing those elements while keeping a, a very compelling story oh i couldn't agree more it's interesting to hear about all of the different restrictions that <laughs> that he had to work with because i find that it's funny because one of the things i love about it is the film's restraint mm -hmm. which i always anytime you see a film from the 50s and 60s you know censorship of that day was much more heavily prominent than it is these days so you know you're going to go into some to a filmmaker who was working against some restraint, but that is one of the things that I that I do appreciate and adore about this film. I I mean, films are what they are, and some films have no restraint whatsoever. Last time you were here, Vera, we were talking about friggin' Ash versus Evil Dead. Um, but I do appreciate when somebody approaches a story like this, and it is a bit more reserved. I feel like it's it's a bit more haunting as a result of that i feel like it's it's punches hit a little harder when they come because it is so restrained elsewhere so uh so i i kind of appreciate that well i, I don't know about y'all but if you have even seen at least the first 10 minutes of a very popular recent uh, french horror film called high tension you will discover <laughs> that <laughs> the french censors have totally slackened <laughs> 
their strict their strictures in the last fifty years. Un- understandably, pass. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I think the only uh, trivia bit I have, which is barely that because it happens on screen, is Reed. I think this might be. You've alluded to this already, but I think this might be the first Criterion Collection film we've covered. I think. I believe it is. I did not go back through and look at our list to see if there's anything that has been added to the Criterion Collection, but I think this might be our first Criterion Collection film. Later in the series, stay tuned, everybody. We will have another one uh, very, very soon. But, yeah, I believe this is our this is our very first one. We're, so we're getting cultured. We're getting prestigious, did Nathan that, Rouse. either of you see, um, Reed, you mentioned the seven people fainting at um, a screening of that. Did you see what the, the director responded? Oh no! To the news that's it was at the Edinburgh Edinburgh Film Festival in Scotland, and oh, uh, no. and his response to the news that seven audience members fainted was, "Now I know why Scotsmen wear skirts." <laughs> wow! Oh my wow. gosh! I don't Those... even know how to recover from the ah uh, the French. Wee <laughs> <laughs> oui, wee! Oui. Yeah. Um, so well, Reed, bring us into this film. Okay, so uh, the premise, the loose premise behind the film, um, which again, Nathan's not kidding. There, there is no metaphor behind the title. <laughs> um, so, um, but the loose premise behind this film, uh, which, which is, it's fascinating because I'm almost even resistant to say too much just about the premise of the film because the first thirty minutes they withhold quite a few of some of the key conceits of the film. You don't quite know what what's happening, but there is a, a, a doctor, uh, Genese. Am I saying it right? Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Genese, who uh, we find out he is a surgeon and he has uh, certain particular skill sets. He's developing a new uh, method of transplant uh, called a heterograph that uh, basically would be uh, the regrafting of, of skin tissue, um, specifically around the face. And you come to find out that his daughter... Um, suffered a, there was a, a tragic accident, um, and he was responsible for it. Uh, it was an automobile accident he was responsible for, left her horribly disfigured. Um, and so uh, she has to wear this this mask um, that covers up pretty much everything but her eyes, which is the only part of her face that, that remains um, basically uh, intact, if you will. I get and it now. Um, so but what you find out is that he is terribly devoted to trying to fix her face and so he has been uh, as you do he has been uh, (laughs) kidnapping and and murdering young women who have similar appearance as his daughter and has been removing their faces to try to uh, basically uh, fix and graft it onto his daughter's face so that he can restore her. Um, and that is the that is the general conceit of this film. And, and it, the scene in question, which probably is more appropriately uh, referenced in our scares section, uh, but the scene in question is of one of these surgical procedures in rather vivid detail, if I can say that. Um, you can. Yeah, because it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the camera just does not move away. You're just like, oh, oh, okay, all right. Well, that's that's all of it. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so what did you guys generally 
think about this film, Vera? I, I heard you mention earlier that you that you you it seemed like you really liked the film. Feel like it uh, does a really good job with what it does. What what are some of your general feelings and reactions to the film? I, Likes dislikes, if you will. I thought I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was. I mean, it probably wasn't meant to be funny. Um, in parts, but mm. <laughs> but, but Rob and I did laugh and we enjoyed um some of the things like the Louise. Is that the secretary's name? Yes. Her theme music. <laughs> It's like <laughs> the little music. calliope. Oh, so it's amazing! It was really that made us laugh. Um, um, and and I saw this description when I was doing um some research for trivial bits, but I thought of it at the time I was watching it that it has a very poetic um feel to it. Um, the mm. the way certain characters move and the use of the score throughout the film, like it's it's very yeah. um. Sentiment, it's got a sentimental undertone to it, which I really mm. enjoyed while I was watching it. I didn't think that that would be there. Now, let me interject here uh, to comment on something you said, Vera, and ask you a question here, Reed, because you didn't jump in and I thought you might. Clarify here, Vera, you referred to her as secretary, but that's the wife mom, right? I, uh, I, no, I, I don't not... think it is. No, no I don't oh, think really? it is. Yeah. I, I she, sh- she's devoted to the doctor because he healed her. He right. gave her her face. But I think that is, uh, yeah, I would, I viewed her as like a, an Igor type character, <laughs> not as, not as the, uh, what hump? Ab- so, ab- um, <laughs> but, um, what, but, what neck incision? <laughs> So, but no, I I did not get that she had any because she's not that she's even though she's a bit caring, she never feels maternal to Christiane, like she, she to me she doesn't feel like somebody who's very. But did uh, I am I making up that the accident, the car accident, they do reference the mother and her. The the mother. Injured? So um, at the beginning of the the movie when he gives the lecture on heterographs right. and the the old women come up and talk to him afterwards as he's walking away one of the old ladies says to someone that he's his demeanor has changed since the the death of his wife Mm, yep yes but i interpreted that as in the way that he faked christiane's death that that's how i read that oh wow yeah because i'm with you that you're meant the public is meant to believe his wife has died previously the, the the daughter has died you know, recently or whatever. Um, but I, now again, I've only watched it the one time and I kept looking for metaphor, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but I interpreted her as the wife and mom, but you know, maybe, maybe that well, was an incorrect interpretation. I will. So I will because say of this. the casualness of him and the, the, whoever she is. Right. Well, I will say this: if if they are husband and wife, they are alarmingly unromantic. Like, sure. like they yeah. never. Yeah. Well, they I mean, never this, once. This dude is a bit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> romantic is not a word I would use for this fella. Um, okay, so so I, all right, I just I had to know if I was if I was off base or whatever. So according to the Wikipedia page, whatever that whatever uh, authority that can be given, it refers to her as his assistant. Okay. So, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I like being proved wrong live, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun, it's one, a fun feeling. It's one, like a, one of my favorite pastimes. It's like having your face graph it off and put on something surgically, else. Surgically <laughs> you keep, like, you, oh, keep, you keep looking for purpose and you're like, nope, that just happened. You know, <laughs> that's nope. There, there it is. Uh, excuse me. I'll go get some tissue. So, um, 
<laughs> but, oh my um, gosh. But no, I do it it is funny. I do like that opening sequence. It's a bit jarring, you know, this drive through the woods and then you don't know who that is in the back. Um but in retrospect, so so if you watch this film a second time, in retrospect, that's that scene when Dr. Genesee is going to identify the corpse that he wrongly identifies as right. his daughter. That scene, when you know it's not, I don't know if this pinged either of you in the moment, but when you know it's not, that scene is awful. Like when you know this this poor father whose daughter is, in fact, sitting in that other room, and this man who is directly responsible for her death just so casually identifies falsely identifies that as his daughter and then just like brushes off the grieving father it's it's an awful scene not even brushes him off tells him that i'm supposed to comfort you when there's my daughter on that table like full out lies to him and makes him feel guilt yeah what a psychopath yeah (laughs) oh my god so yeah it's well it's it's pretty terrible and who knows maybe i interpreted falsely again here but um the you you reference read the heaviness of him misident intentionally misidentifying her, but mm. almost more than that is the doubling down on the potential that that man he runs into might actually be the father of the girl in there, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, oh yeah. That's pretty. It's, it's pretty awful. Rough. In fact, what I wrote down of old Genesequa, <laughs> that means, um, <laughs> is. <laughs> is i was like this guy is so creepy i don't know how anybody trusts him like i don't don't understand in the performance of this character how anybody is like that's a good dude (laughs) you can you can trust him with your medical needs (laughs) he looks at everybody very wide-eyed yes i mean he's got that like chin strap sort of facial hair going on like you can't trust him and the eyebrows he's got the eyebrows oh my he's got the eyebrows Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Gosh. Bushy eyebrows, spectacles, and a chin strap. That, that's a recipe for mistrust right there. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> um, so there's there's so many things that I... Oh, God. There's so many things that I love about the film, but as I'm going through my little list of likes, dislikes here, I feel like basically everything that I'm seeing, with except for one thing that I'll mention here, it, it would also be appropriate in the fear category. So I'm gonna, so I'm basically going to save most of the rest of my notes for for that category. But the one thing that would just be a love is you just mentioned about how creepy this doctor is and everything. But I I do kind of like that they show him being tender and generous to like sick children. Um, it, it it makes the it makes because he's so psychopathic everywhere else, it's fascinating to me to show him, not that it humanizes him, because what we've seen him do prior to this, there's there's really no redemption available for him as a character. But it's, it's I don't know, it was, just, it was affecting to me to see... Will like, you remind him. me, will you contextualize the scene? So it's in... To? It's in the last third of the film where we see, because he's, uh, I, I don't know what his role is at this hospital, but he's going around from patient to patient right. and specifically sits on the bed of this sick child and like makes the child laugh and is really tender with the, the little child. And, and so I was like, oh man, I don't know whether this is all the, all the creepier because we know and have seen who he really is or if this complicates everything in that He's he's got this other side to him as well. Um, but either way, I found it really compelling. Hmm. Yeah, um, I thought it made him creepier. I was like, to, sure, be, just because of how psychopathic he is through the rest of the film. I was like, oh, he's like playing altruistic. Right, right. 
Oh, oh absolutely. He's, he's jacked up. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He's an evil man. He he dropped that dead girl down a hole. <laughs> oh. that, ain't, that ain't right. <laughs> no. And, you know, speaking of that ain't right, so there's a scene that happens maybe at about the fourth, one-fourth mark, where he crosses his arms pensively and strokes his chin strap and he's talking about this new idea that he has for how to to remove a face right like i'm not gonna segment it anymore Mm -hmm. and then you watch the grizzly scene which is you kind of can't turn it's like a car wreck right you can't turn away from that oh my gosh yeah it's awful but watching him cut that girl's face off, it makes his musing about taking it all at once even funnier to me because he makes it look so easy. I was like, was that was that really this revelatory medical leap that he stumbled on to not segment the face anymore? Like, why are we even discussing this? Look at how he did that. It didn't, he didn't have to work for it. I mean, it's gross and it's a little tedious, but <laughs> I don't want to see the person he tried that on previously where he segmented it instead of taking the whole thing. Good Lord. It's such right. an, no, it ain't right. Vera, what yeah, was your reaction off-putting. to that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> off-putting is to put it mildly. Uh, yeah, what was your response to that whole extended surgical sequence yeah. that happens about midway through the film? It, a car wreck is an apt way to describe it. Like, we could not look away, and it was like, oh, this is happening. Oh, yep, oh he's going God. for it. Oh, and then, <laughs> did you notice how when he, with the second girl that you see him do it with, he does the pencil outline around the face first? Um, yeah. But with the first, the the prolonged scene, he does not. He just takes the scalpel around her entire face. He doesn't even match Whoa. up at the bottom. <laughs> the oh, lines. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That was so haphazard. I don't know why he expected that to work. <laughs> he's, he's like all elegantly. So he's he's drawn everything. He clearly knows where he's going. And then just starts hacking. Just starts like and just chopping oh, away. And we were God. like, we were watching and we were like, oh, okay. He's going to cut the no. eye holes out. And then he starts pulling it off. And we were like, what about the lips? What's he going to do with the lips? Oh, <laughs> why you got to do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's so awful. It's so awful. It wasn't. Oh. It wasn't lips without a face. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have anything else that would categorize as kind of a like dislike category? Because otherwise, I got it's all fear from here on. Oh, out. I love, I love when Edna got the jump on, on old girl. Oh yeah, Louise. Oh she, yeah. We, yeah. We, I laughed out loud. He, she hit on the head with the bottle, and the bottle didn't break. I didn't expect no, that. No. Yeah. It's funny. You're so used well, to seeing that shattered, fragile bottle yeah. over top of everybody's head, but this one doesn't. Well, we don't totally know what Louise's, you know, surgical procedure was. Maybe she you got you know a head graft or something. Oh, it's like a got a metal oh, plates in her head. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That certainly sounds like it would make the bottle sturdier. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> no, or maybe there's just nothing back there. It's just like oh, it's <laughs> like I found a way to replace the brain skull with jelly. <laughs> that's why. That's why that calliope music plays all the time. It's just like boom, 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 boom. It's just a like jack a in the box. Under there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take this one for you, sir. Wee wee. Hello. Oh man. Um, gracious. Yeah. So so I have a, a decent list of. Uh, Oh, can I just mention one thing? Please do. Um, when Christiane is is walking around the house just before she calls Jacques the first time, and there's mm-hmm. and she has her own theme music, um, but the way she is walking and how the music is playing, it almost looks like a dance. I just thought it was a very hmm. pretty, Ooh. well done 
scene. Yeah. I love everything about that actor playing Christiane. Every time she's on screen, she's the most captivating character to me. Like every th- th- there definitely is this could go in in likes or fear. Like there is a haunting but captivating Yes. look to her when she's got so i mean she virtually does have any the perfect time. eyes for this role like oh, they're she so does. big and so they expressive very much very much and considering because she has a couple of scenes or really just the one major scene where uh immediately following the first successful uh heterograph that she's without the mask but really that's the only scene everything else she has to do so much with her eyes and it really is impressive to me how much she's able to convey um and it and all the more chilling that she's doing so behind this you know it's it's like a foamy plastic but very blank face that she's got on um yeah she's she's incredible i love everything about that performance um the the thing i'll start off the list of scares and maybe we can go around a little bit so when it's it's the only time i jumped in in the film and i'd seen it before but I had forgotten how sudden and abrupt it was. So the scene where he does the surgery is obviously unnerving, but there's no musical affectation to it. It's just there, and you just have to endure it. But when he sets down, Edna is the victim, the first victim that we know their name. When he sets down Edna's glass and then quickly like puts the cloth around to chloroform her and oh, that was knock intense. her out. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I I jumped. I was sitting there watching it. I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot that that's how abrupt this was. Um, it, it's so jarring because he just sets the glass down and then immediately grabs her. And I don't remember if there's like a musical cue at that point or if it's just her startled scream that does it, but I was, I, it was very, very jarred. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. Well, the way he's playing with um, the bottles, it you think that maybe he's going to um, drug her drink or something, right? Right, right, so, yes. So I didn't expect it to be a chloroform rag. And I, right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, what the, what, I've got a few more, but I've been talking a lot. What's, what's some other sort of scares that you guys have written down? Uh, the face reveal. I would not want to wake up to that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you're, uh, you're talking about Christiane's face, right? Yeah. The kind of fogged but still very noticeable, like, this is what she looks like underneath. Yeah, pre, pre-heterographed pre uh, when the Edna is on the table and, and she's standing over her and she wakes her up. And then they, mm. yeah. I mean, in general, it's it's already been referenced, but just the effectiveness of the mask is what I have. I don't have a ton of scares written down, but that is definitely mm. one of them. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the actual procedure is, is so that ain't right is to exemplify the phrase. Um, mm-hmm. I do think again, that the more the movie is more, I'm sorry, the movie is less kind of quote unquote scary and more just kind of uh, disturbing if you will. But um, one of the most prominent moments to me illustrating that is the progression of the photos of the graft tissue failing. Oh my yeah. gosh, yes. That's awful. That's awful. Yes. That's so gross. Yeah, it's re- and and done without uh, I I think this is brilliant. It's done without any I keep wanting to go back to the word manipulation. Like it just it just shows you this is yeah, this. Yeah. And and he's speaking almost clinically, you know, like just this this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it oh, it's yeah, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Um I had written down 
Edna's, you know, we referenced earlier this this love of the Edna, you know, clocking Luis over the head and you think she's going to get away, but falling out the window again with that dreadful scream that we've heard a couple of times. Um, and then just, you know, the, the overhead shot of her down at the sidewalk right. below um, and then cutting down to it. It's just it's just awful. I mean, it's it it does what it intends to do, which is, you know kind of a gut punch but yeah it's just it's terrible yeah but that problem took care of itself <laughs> <laughs> yep it's like well I, I thought i was gonna have to do something more drastic but she just fell um did I anybody think, else uh, this is Go this ahead. is random but i'm trying to process in real time my my thoughts on some of that um ultimately i think my appreciation for the film is a bit down the middle and part of it is uh, and one i've only seen it once it is very distinct in its presentation. Um, and so I think maybe a repeat viewing would enhance some of this, but I was, I was really innervated when Edna suddenly for the moment becomes a protagonist. You know what I mean? Like I was like, Oh wow, this is a cool little turn. Um, oh, and sure, so, sure. so there's a little bit of anticlimax when she does suffer the fate she does. Um, right. right. You know, so I, I don't know. I, I've, I clearly the movie is, a little less interested and and it is i would be curious um you know what what if any kind of major discrepancies exist between the film and the and the book version um because mm-hmm. clearly ultimately it's kind of christiane's lostness that is the primary sort of story you know what i mean right, um right but yeah in terms of i don't know that was just a random thought not quite so much scares or or likes dislikes well i think and and this will so okay so I'm I'm about to be very intentional about um, pivoting into something that I have for for themes so I want to uh, pause for a bit before I do and say does anybody else have anything that would be some somewhat surfacey to mention before we go ahead and dive to the shallows before heading home or the dive into the space at the end of the movie oh my gosh where do after the dogs are done with him oh that was yeah a... or lack oh. thereof yeah right. yes oh my gosh that Which, man got hey Reed that man got Ramsey Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> right. I thought about it. I thought about Ramsey Bolton in the middle of that. Oh my gosh. Do you watch Game of Thrones, Vera? Yes, I did. Okay, oh good. yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean oh, a tempered good, but yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um well I, so, I do want to throw out, I'm sorry, before you do that, sure. you, you no, asked the fine. question. I I initially wrote this down as kind of humorous, but I, I actually just you know, as I'm kind of pondering it, mean it with a little bit of intention too, and who knows, maybe it'll steer into where you're going thematically. You know, the film ends with her just kind of wandering off into the night with this bird on her arm. Um, mm. And honestly, what, I, the, the, what I'm staring at right now, the, the, what I wrote down is what's next for Christian. And I just, mm. I don't have an answer to that. And I just, I find it kind of interesting that that's where it lands, you know? Sure. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and again, like I said, maybe that will steer a little bit towards your thematic stuff. But I'm thinking about this in real time right now. But, you know, that image... This movie was made in a different era, although maybe I, I would have to look at the chronology here. What I was going to say is made of a different era, so I don't know that it's meant to be any sort of callback to this type of imagery. But we late 70s, 80s folk have lived for decades with the kind of Disney princess image of the the relationship to the animals, right? Like uh, right. there's something very kind of like traditionally historically idyllic 
about the wayfish kind of princessy type character communing with the animals. And so there's, I don't know, there's something dissonant intentionally about this film's imagery that leaves me kind of like, okay, well, what, what, what are we supposed to kind of feel about? Cause I mean, she's so lost, like, like, right. You, you know, that, that I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of chattering, but well, so it stood I, out to me. I actually feel like, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm reaching or reading too much into it. I actually feel, so I love that ending. Love, love, love with a capital L. Love that ending. I would categorically not define her at the end of the film as lost, but rather as finally free. And you, you talk about this, this relationship with the animals and there's a bird on her arm. So a, a couple of things that I wrote down, but then I have, I have something to sort of sure. meld all of this in together. So I did write down just the three words, masks are cages. And I thought about the fact that she, one of the things, because I, I love her big defiant breakout at the end, and I love that as a part of that, she's going through and releasing all of these animals. Right. And obviously, it's the, it's the dogs that you know, get the better of, of uh, you know, Dr. Genesee there. But so she's releasing every single animal that he's held captive, but then she herself has been held captive. And she's been held captive behind this this mask, this fabrication. He faked her death. And then it was this this that moment where they're at dinner and he thinks the first, you know, the the heterograph has finally worked. And saying like, okay, well, you'll travel for a little while, and then you'll be reintroduced, new name, you know, everything like that. And I'm just thinking, wow, like she's such a prisoner to this thing that has happened, and this particular. Uh, I'm, please hear the sensitivity with which I use this this next word. This particular defect that her condition, her current condition, is being treated as that this accident, this thing has happened to you, so now you are fully disfigured in general. And so now you have, there's, there's so much to it about her present captivity that in the end, uh, the other thing that I wrote down is when will we find the freedom from hiding from our scars? Hmm. And that's, that's so much of what her breaking out at the end finally says to me is like I'm, I'm i'm done with watching you because she's the she does not witness what happens to edna edna is the only victim uh that we see her have the opportunity to break out but when the police inspectors kind of suspect what's going on and then they plant this woman who's going to go through this experience and and she almost has the very same thing happen to her but this time Christiane is sitting in the same room watching all of it build up. And she's she's watching everything play out, which prompts her decision to make this big breakout. And so to me, so much of that ending speaks about, and I don't even know that I have fully fleshed, you know, fleshed out bumper stickers to put on this, but this idea of like a mask being a cage and hiding our scar tissue, hiding what others would see as a defect, keeping us imprisoned and keeping us out of the world beyond this little insulated place. And in the end, 
even though I do agree with you, Nathan, what's next for her, I don't quite know. But I do think that what's ahead of her is so much more hopeful and positive than what she was trapped in while her father was presumably trying to, you know, quote unquote, fix her, which much of that had to do with his own guilt at having caused it. But he was trying so desperately to fix her and that was actually imprisoning her. And uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you guys well, think me, when I bring that I, up? I'm I'm feeling bad dominating, but I've got a immediate response to what you're saying there. And then Vera, please say whatever you want. But go for the, it. The um, again, I've only seen this once, so it's purely just this this single kind of experience that I'm building off. But I I want to applaud your take on the end. I struggle a little bit with it being a hopeful sort of my takeaway is not one of hopefulness for this character uh, an interesting pivot that might have lent more credibility to that notion to me would be and just i know sometimes we do this or sometimes i do this of like hey what if this had happened instead of what we get like you your takeaway read is one of okay she's she's free now uncaged that kind of thing but to me the mask staying on kind of doesn't quite support that or mm. at least is a little inconsistent like something that would like if the final frame you know she's wandering out and the the, the shots on her sort of uh front uh aspect and she's got the bird on her arm and then there is a shot right where it cuts to her from behind as she wanders into the woods that's um, the final shot yeah like if this is again it's it's a it's a criterion collection who am i to question this but to me, what would have supported a little more what your takeaway is, is if as she's walking away and her walking away from us, the viewer and the camera, if she had set the mask aside, that mm-hmm. to me would have really, would have really kind of firmed up what I think you're after. Whereas to me, I, with one viewing in, I don't know that who this character is as she wanders away is really equipped to to kind of deal with what with whatever is next for her mm-hmm. um because she's been so traumatized and, and kind of damaged anyway that, that that was just an immediate response to sort of what you were saying but i want to let the air hang for for other thoughts too yeah sure uh what do you think vera um i can definitely see what you're saying in terms of the her being caged and and mm. wanting to be free and it's it's mentioned specifically in the movie um, about the the doctor's need to control, right? Uh, she yes, she says yes. that to Louise. She said he has to control everything, even other drivers on the road. He was driving like a lunatic, mentioning the the night that he caused her accident. Yes, and, yes. And even though I'm sure he does feel um, some guilt in it, I also think there's an element of of pride in him wanting to be successful in in the heterograft and to the point where he would rather his daughter be presumed dead than be seen as disfigured because then it would be known that he wasn't successful. Um, And so it's his need to control that situation. Um, I, I think the, the whole cage thing is definitely there because she does set the animals free from their cages at the end. And then she does walk, you know, out of, of her prison, the home that she's been locked in. Um, It's like very literal, but I looked at the, more like the mask itself because the mask is the the motif of the movie 
Right. And what does a mask do? Right. It hides your face and it presents a new and a different appearance. And I uh, took away that kind of everybody in this movie, the main characters, the three main characters are wearing masks, not literally Mm. Christiane. Yes, literally. But everybody else, um, metaphorical masks, but they're hiding who they are and presenting something else. Mm. So, okay, what did I write down? Uh, Christiane has a literal mask hiding her disfigurement and she's she's locked inside the cage by her father the doctor who is whose his mask is playing the altruistic doctor you know be making kids laugh right. and taking care of of right. other people within the hospital um while really serving his own purposes in quote-unquote caring for his daughter and murdering these other people trying to have a su- successful heterograph we see when he does the lecture circuit right and he's talking yeah. about um this the surgery that he's an expert in um, and Louise's mask is her pearl necklace. She's hiding the scars from her her, her mm. surgery, right? But ultimately, right. but ultimately, you can't hide your identity forever, and it's going to come out, right? Christiane longs to be free from her father and the mask, um, and she does so by killing Louise and setting the dogs on her father and walking off into the forest, right? Who knows what right. happens to her? Right. And I don't think that she knows what's going to happen to her, but she's achieved her goal. She's free. Um, right, the doctor right. is destroyed by his own work, right? The the dogs that mm-hmm. he's been experimenting on. And Louise is destroyed by her loyalty to the doctor, right? right. She's loyal right. to the end and then Christiane kills her to get her out of the way. So you can't hide who you are in the end. Mm. I really like that take. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, uh, I do think that's something that I didn't really fully expect about this film, but I think it's true that there we joked earlier about like, yeah, so there's no metaphor uh, in the title, but maybe there is a tremendous amount of subtextual symbolism and different ways that you can view the perils or the plights of these individual characters and, and what happens to them. Um, I don't know if we have something more to say on that, but I know we've, we've been talking a while. Um, I, I have one more thing that I wanted to mention just in passing. And if we want to unpack that a little bit more, we can. If we want to pivot back to what some of us have already been discussing, that'd be fine, too. Um, but this one phrase that the doctor says about a little more than halfway through the movie, I believe, if memory serves, this is after we have seen the full heterograph uh, surgery. Um, but he and Louise are out on the grounds of their property, and I think he's smoking a cigarette, and they're talking about it, and they, they have faith that this time it's going to work. and um, And then... She says it's a miracle, and he says, and I, I couldn't believe that he said it so directly. He said, I've done so much wrong to perform this miracle. And it froze me for a bit when I heard him say that and thought about this notion of the ways in which our guilt will drive us to try to do something we have deemed good in our own eyes, but that the getting there will have so many broken eggs to make the omelet, so to speak, that we will justify in our mind. Um, I thought about the the audacity of a statement, I've done so much wrong to perform this miracle. Like you would call it, bene- miracle is automatically a very sort of hope-filled and benevolent word, but to perform one or to enact one, the idea that you would do a bunch of things you would admit were wrong in order to see this miracle come about, uh, I don't know. It, it haunted and fascinated me, and I, uh, I, I, not meaning to try 
too hard to to be deliberate, but connecting back to you can't hide who you are, as you'd said, Vera, you can't hide who you are in the end. And ultimately, I think that's true of our actions. And I think that's true of the choices that we've made. Uh, I think ultimately they will, uh, as, as Shakespeare said, uh, the truth will out. It will uh, become clear at some point uh, what was really behind everything that we may for the moment deem miraculous or fortuitous or wh- whatever uh, whatever delusion that we have hid ourselves behind um, it, when we are not being terribly self-aware and terribly self-conscious to understand and interrogate our own actions and choices in the face of what we're doing because of our guilt or shame or fill in the blank on everything on, on anything else. Well, it's so interesting because I really, I'm not going to like challenge forcefully at all, but it is interesting even here in that take read of how how much I, this one viewing, how little hopefulness I find in the end. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in the sense that to me, yes, there is a literal sort of unburdening of where she's been caged, but my note, my thematic note, and it was minimal previous to the conversation, but that plays in possibly decently here is the inability to cope with trauma. Um, Mm. and how at one point she says, I wish I was blind or dead. Like there's Mm. a very, it's like the propulsion of their lack, their inability or unwillingness to reckon with in Genesee's case, his guilt in Christiane's case, her loss. They, they don't reckon with those things. And what you end with to me is this very Pyrrhic victory of she's physically liberated but there's still mountains of work left for this poor woman. If, mm-hmm. if like, like to me, the, an hour later scene, the post credit scene is her wandering the woods with this mask on speaking. I don't mean gibberish, but in the sense of like talking to these animals, you know what I mean? Like very lost, very psychologically mm-hmm lost by you know like like the physical loss of her kind of facial integrity propelled her into this state of maskedness um that is perpetuated by her father's guilt if we can call it guilt uh keeping her in this state while he plays god with these other women's right sort of inherent gifting of their own sort of integrity um, like all of this swirl kind of, you know, she's wriggled out from under a certain burden, but yeah, has so much left to do if, if in fact it's going to get done. So, so it, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. Again, I'm not at all pushing per se hard against what you've established, but just my takeaway was, was kind of disparate from, from a hopeful view, because I think these people are very. You know, you, I mean, I, uh, Vera, you identified in terms of the masked nature of things and how this obscures our identity, like the comment of your identity will present like that identity is going to present whether you are willful in its presentation or not. Like some some manifestation of of inner truth is going to force its way out and mm. and possibly in a very 
sad fashion. I don't know if that that statement yeah. makes sense, but I don't know. I don't know. It's just interesting. Like I don't, I don't see her story. Hopefully, sure. I Nathan, I like your the imagery you presented of like the grotesque Disney princess kind of wandering off into the forest at the end yeah. with, with the bird, mm-hmm. and she's got the the beautiful flowing nightgown, and she's yeah. walking off into the woods, but she still has the mask on, mm. and um. And even um, in the house, right? They've covered all of the mirrors. They're all covered in black cloth, so she can never see herself, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And she has to go down into the the surgery room and look at this tiny little mirror on the wall if she wants to to grieve over her her face. And that's the first Mm. time you see the mask is when she does that. Um, And so there's kind of an obsession with or a a vanity there um, on her part, and also her father i think um in doing that they also leave up um there's a painting of her on the wall and i think the end of the movie is is maybe a callback to that painting because i think i think in the painting she has a bird or something on her hand um but she's yeah and it's it's of her and she looks very beautiful and she's she's got her face before the accident and and that's the only image of her that is uncovered except for um, on Jacques' table, you see a photograph of her. But in the house, there is, that's the only time you see her original face is this idyllic painting of her, um, not mm. even a real photograph. And, and she can't see herself at all. And her father is performing literal facelifts yeah. in order yeah. to give her back that beauty, mm. which she doesn't get in the end. Right. Hmm. Well, I certainly feel worse about this film. No, I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just well, kidding. No. I, I hope you don't. No, that, that like, was be, that okay. was a very facetious comment. No, 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 no. I, I I really appreciate sincerely a lot of what you guys are are bringing to it, and I think for for myself, it really speaks to some of the underlying complexity to this story of because again the director had said he viewed this as a, a story of deep, prolonged anguish. That was that was what the director had said. He viewed this not necessarily as a horror story, but um, as a story of anguish and grief. And um, and so I think even though, uh, you know, that my, my response to it was a bit more uh, automatic uh, for myself, I, I actually don't even strongly disagree with some of what you guys have presented and I'll echo what Vera said as well. I, I just kind of the, the uh, it's almost Halloween uh, grotesque lover in me just kind of loves the idea of this sort of macabre pr- princess vision that we keep referencing of uh, yeah, this is, this is not your snow white wandering out to be rescued by Prince Charming and the Seven Dwarves, or anybody. This is something much darker. No, this and is much Snow grimmer. White that's going to get found and put in a sanatorium because she doesn't have a face and she's been right, locked yes. away after being presumed dead. Like, yeah, absolutely. Would you? Absolutely. Would, like, I, I, maybe I'm uh, revealing what might be my own dimness in this question, but to me, that sort of perverse or, or grotesque princess imagery is only kind of coming to me that like the final image feeds that, but the, these further supporting of that idea is only kind of through this conversation. One, would y'all have identified that? Like the more I'm pondering, pondering it, the more I'm like, no, this is an actual inversion of that kind of fairy tale trope. It's, it's the, mm. 
the benevolent historically the benevolent father figure kind of out for the good of his child the the maternal figure which is why i intuited louise as that sort of role um uh-huh. you know kind of grooming this person to be out in the world whole and well but honestly it's funny you said snow white in the sanitarium like um the image that came to me before you said that vera was like it's like if rapunzel is locked in the tower and instead of climbing out she just falls to her death out the window like oh you know it's it's I mean, I don't mean that crudely. I just mean like sure, no, there's no, such a kind of pang of, of you know, kind of broken. I don't mean brokenness in the how we kind of hyper, you know, hyper-spiritualize that word, but just these folks are screwed up mm-hmm. <laughs> kind right. of way. Yeah. Right. And you see that dysfunction too when they're sitting around, um, they're sitting around the table after she gets the the heterograft and they think it's been successful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like I, I didn't, think that louise was was a mom but i did get the image of like a a perversion of a family at that table right and Mm. the father is is talking to her and he tells um he tells christian to smile he Mm. says smile Mm -hmm. smile and then he says not too much yeah right right right. (laughs) control yeah because ultimately that new face is still if i think you said this earlier vera that that face is still a mask Mm-hmm. Even even if it had worked and it had been successful, it's still a mask. And I think that's something I don't know. I I think I think that's something that I keep going back to about this notion of like not hiding from our defects and deformities, what other people might call defects and deformities, but rather uh, finding a path, whether those have they've been caused as they have for Christiane by some traumatic accident or maybe traumatic not accident, um, depending on each individual's story, but finding a place to where you no longer, and I'm not even positing that she finds that, because I think you've made some really compelling points, um, but finding the place where our scars are no longer moments of shame for us, but are rather just this this is a thing that we have moved past um, or a thing that we have broken free from the need to hide, broken free from the need to cover up, uh, or even broken free from the need to fix that, you know, this is just, this is a part of who we are now. Now, granted, we're dealing with extremes because this is horror. So, I mean, it would it would be some doing for her to be able to walk amongst people maskless in normalcy we you know we see or masked but yeah yeah Yeah. right right um so we see that and i I don't want to pretend that it would be easy in any degree but i feel like i feel like that's ultimately and that the the, what it reminds me of i I feel like i have referenced this somewhat recently on the podcast so forgive me if i'm just bringing up something that's been on my mind a lot is that that is the way that Christ, when he had resurrected, presented himself to the disciples as part of how he could be recognized, is, look at look at my scars. Like, I'm bearing the scars of what happened. And to me, I feel like there is a possibility that we ourselves as individuals might find a place where we have become... Was it Nathan, uh, as the resident Beekner expert, correct me if I'm wrong, was it, was it him who had talked about becoming friends with our wounds? Was that him or was that Henry Nowen? 
I love that the last time you called me the beginner expert, that this is the exact reference you made. Was it? In was the life it? Life of me, I don't know the answer to this question. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, it's just going to come up. It's a recurring thing. Right, every right, new, right. Every Six year, months from now, Nathan, as the resident beginner expert, the becoming friends with our wounds. That's him, right? Like, <laughs> But no, so I, I know that there was somebody, I believe it was Beekner, referenced in some way um, about how if we become friends with, with our wounds, it was either Frederick Beekner or it was Henry, Henry Nowen, but um, talking about becoming friends with our scars or becoming friends with our wounds. And uh, I don't know, I've, I've found that since I heard it, uh, clearly not attributing it properly, but um, since I've heard it, that has been something that I frequently meditate upon uh, in passing or in extended periods of time of just like, no, our, our wounds are not necessarily something for us to hang shame upon or to hang uh, guilt upon, but rather uh, the fact that we have, the fact that we carry them is, uh, you know, a remembrance is in its way when we, when, when they don't define us, uh, can be a version of freedom. I don't know. It, 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 it causes a lot of, uh, thoughts and reflections that I wish I was able to more concretely wrestle down, but, but we've been talking a while. So I'm going to, uh, before we sort of wrap this up, does anybody have any particular final buttons, beats, thoughts on any particular thing that we've been talking about? Reed, can I ask you, do you, like in as you're describing that thematic idea you just said like in your interpretation of the end do you feel like she's embracing this maskedness as the new identity and that like is that how i don't know if i'm making myself clear i'm just trying to figure out like you know you talked about kind of owning your wounds i think is you, you may have becoming friends with your wounds this idea like mm-hmm. Are you extrapolating your now sort of, here's where I'm following these ideas from this movie, or are you saying that's how you sort of read the end of this, this story? It is how I read the end of the story. Interesting. I read, I, I read the end of the story uh, much more hopefully. Like I read the end of the story much more as I will not be confined by this anymore. So she, So I do agree, and even in my reading of it, I do agree she is venturing off into who knows what. And she and and maybe is making a decision to die uh, by venturing out into nothing, but is actively I think it could be properly said is actively making a decision to no longer be caged or confined anymore, sure. whether she remains masked or not, to no longer be a prisoner inside what has happened to her. So whether she is resigning herself to a version of death or whether she believes there is a possible freedom ahead of her, she has decided I will no longer remain you right. know, shielded up in this house. I will break free from this. And she has actively rebelled against the only plausible path for her actual healing. You know, mm-hmm. she, she unleashed the dogs on her father. So she has actively resisted and rebelled against needing to be fixed if you will Um, i like i like the idea in following this you know kind of um princess theme of her wandering into the woods the credits start and then the credits kind of ebb out as she you know kind of totters into a clearing in the woods and flora fauna and meriwether greet her and (laughs) you know kind of take her into her new life as make it princess references yes yes (laughs) that's what we do 
Um, Vera, did you have any other uh, additional thoughts or final thoughts or anything? Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just um, thinking about some of like I I like that the the ending is is open to interpretation. I like sure, that sure. you know you can go the hopeful route or you can go the the macabre route, but you, yeah. you don't know what happens to her and it's left up to the imagination. And I I like that I like that it can spawn a discussion like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, with that, we've been talking a while. Uh, it, if you guys don't mind, let's go ahead and uh, pivot over into the uh, fog meter, our very specific metric uh, where we determine uh, a film's rating based on uh, its fear measurement and its God measurement, basically its scares and its substance. So, um, so Vera, I'm going to go to you first. Um, uh, on the fear measurement, uh, on, at 1 to 10, what would you give eyes? without a face so i think that it's more disturbing than it is scary um Mm. there's definitely some horrific elements to it but i would give it a four for scares okay uh what about for you nathan um i echo the sentiment vera had in my head i was at a five just because that procedure scene is so grotesque that it kind of elevates what would have been a pretty minor grade so i'm gonna stick with a five Okay. Um, I am also going to give this a five almost exclusively because of that surgical scene. Like uh, the, the film is not really nightmarish in general, except for that one scene, which I think has the potential to be genuinely nightmarish. Um, now, Nathan, pivoting back to you, what would you give for its God measurement? Hmm. Um, on one viewing, feeling like much of its impressions are on the surface but also knowing there's such a level of intentionality to that ending i am going to i'm going to go with a five on god slash substance because i'm i'm owning to the fact that one viewing may not be quite enough to wrestle down kind of Mm. what all is there but also first impression was it's pretty straightforward gotcha vero what about for you i'm going to give it a seven because cool. I, I think that um, even though we, we joked that uh, there's the eyes without a face, that's it on the surface. I think that there's uh, there's some stuff there if you dig a little, if you look behind the mask. Mm-hmm. If you take the face all at once as opposed to sex, segmenting it out. <laughs> yeah, don't segment the face. Take the whole right, face. Right, right. <laughs> oh, gross. This time we have faith it'll work. Um, so... Uh, I'm I'm going to kind of split this difference a little bit here. I'm going to give it a six. Um, part of it for me feels like it's it's because even uh, with that ending, we you know represented three somewhat different interpretations about that ending, which usually gives uh, you know it usually indicates that there's some substantial things going on subtextually. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm going to give it a six, which means that we give. Eyes without a face, a formal five out of ten on the fog meter. As we know, the fog meter can be a bit harsh and brutal, but I'm going to ask uh, with that five out of ten, uh, I'm going to go to you first again, Vera. Would you recommend Eyes Without a Face to uh, the the casual horror viewer or the cinephile uh, in general? Yeah, I, I would recommend it. It's um, I think it's an accessible movie. Um, there's the one scene that we've talked about multiple times um mm-hmm. 
but because it's in black and white, even though it's it's gross and grotesque, I think it's even people who can't usually stomach those kinds of things that can can get by watching it. Um, and yeah. I think that like I, there's such uh, an anguish, as the director said, and a sadness to the movie, and um, the the score is beautifully done. So mm. I think it's uh, a good watch. So yeah, I'd recommend it. Awesome. What about for you, Nathan? Um, possibly surprising. I don't know. I am going to say yes, because something I did think about watching it and I just forgot to mention until now is there really is something to me that's fun about movies that you just in any other circumstance probably would never even know exist, much less watch. And so there's kind of a fun aspect of that, this kind of artifact, um, to kind of pour over. Um, I don't know that it's like a fun Friday night hang, you know, like, (laughs) like, popcorn entertainment but for kind of pondering for sort of having seen i'm definitely glad to have done so and for at least those basic reasons would recommend a viewing awesome awesome uh yes i would wholeheartedly recommend it for i I would i agree with what you're saying that i it's not the type of film that I would recommend very enthusiastically for people to like, oh, you're going to be blown away by this movie. But for people who prefer their cinema, particularly their grotesque cinema, to be more thoughtful, more reflective, uh, it's got a tremendous amount of atmosphere. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's definitely worth watching, and I agree with what Vera said. It's very accessible as well. So, um, so yeah, I would, I would also wholeheartedly recommend it. Um, well, thank you both very, oh, very much. Can I just say one thing? I forgot to sure. mention this at the beginning. So I rented it on iTunes. That was the only way that I could find it. Mm. Um, I have a an iTunes family account under my brother. So oh. I rented it with his credit card. <laughs> if, if he listens to this episode, Blair, I owe you $5. If, Blair, <laughs> if you don't listen to this episode, I'm not giving you $5. <laughs> Love it. Note to self, find Blair and send him the link. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Um, Well, Vera, we really do appreciate you spending those $5 of Blair's money, and we appreciate you watching (laughs) this film. And uh, and, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's been a pleasure having you back. Um, And uh, Nathan, as always, thank you so much uh, for everything. Uh, Listeners, next week, we are continuing on with our series, Hashtag Speaking in Tongues. This time we're going much more modern, uh, something within the last five years. We are going to 2014's uh, directorial debut by Anna Lily Amarpour, if I'm saying her name correctly, and that the film is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. So um, it is most accessible if you have the streaming service Shudder. It is available there, but it is available to rent in all of the major outlets as well. So thank and you lest, again, Vera. Lest, lest you forget, we are also covering Dark Season 1, Episodes 5 and 6 next week as well. Yes. Uh, so catch up on Dark, Episodes 5 and 6 of Season 1. Check out A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Um, again, Vera, thank you so much for taking the time with us tonight. Nathan, as always, thank yes. you. and Thank you, Vera. Thank you for having me. Au revoir. Of course, and constant listener, always you. We appreciate it. We'll see you next week, guys. The 
Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey. Our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can be found at tpublic.com. Just search the Fear of God podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey, Vera, what's hello? Bonjour. Oh, of course it is. In the moment, I, wow. I've got too much. I've got to shut up. I've got too much on my brain, and I was like, "That's that's I, can't, I couldn't conjure it." You couldn't okay. even go back to Beauty and the Beast. Bonjour, Shh. bonjour, 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 bonjour. Like goes the colors rainbow. Sacre bleu. Dead gummit, you guys. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>